Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful that we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your Son. Lord, we pray that we would live up to our calling. We pray that our time in your word this morning would work towards that end. And so, Lord, soften our hearts, help us to understand strengthen our desires, uh, that we might do as we just sang, that we might live lives pleasing to you uh, for your glory and our joy. Amen. Michael Chancellor for Baptist News, January 2021, writes, more than 40 million Americans are regular visitors to porn sites. The porn industry's annual revenue is more than the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. It's also more than the combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC. 47% of families in the U.S. reported that pornography is a problem in their home. Pornography use increases the marital infidelity rate by more than 300%. 11 is the average age that a child is first exposed to porn, and 94% of children will see, will see porn by the age of 14. 56% of Americans' divorces involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. And then research shows there is a direct link between the porn industry and sex trafficking. But that's all out there, right? Well, Chancellor goes on and says, 68% of church-going men and more than 50% of pastors view porn on a regular basis. Of young Christian adults 18 to 24 years old, 76% actively search for porn. 59% of pastors said married men seek their help for porn use. 33% of women ages 25 and under search for porn at least once per month. Only 13% of self-identified Christian women say they never watch porn. 87% of Christian women have watched porn. 55% of married men and 25% of married women say they watch porn at least once a month. Now, I understand we need to be careful with statistics, but these seem to be accurate. Uh, since I started counseling back in 2004, I've never really taken a break from counseling pornography issues in the life of people in the church, and I haven't counseled outside the church that much. Uh, it's been young, it's been old, it's been retirees, it's been teenagers, you name it, male, female, there have been dozens of books written on this subject, uh, some in the recent past years that are great, some not so great, not so helpful. Uh, we have Net Nanny, we have Covenant Eyes, and uh, loads of other internet blockers and tools, but the problem's not going away. If anything, it feels like it's getting worse. I've seen several marriages end because the husbands had porn problems. I can think of two friends of mine who their wives ended up divorcing them over this issue. Years ago when I was in seminary, next to, I think it was health issues, pornography was the number two issue, keeping would-be missionaries off the field here at Southern Seminary. Pornography is a problem out there, and it is a problem in, in here. It's that bad. 
I am confident that if we sent a microphone around the room row by row, we would hear testimony after testimony of how the destruction of pornography has wreaked in the lives of, of our people, our members. And as Jay Garrett Kells puts it, pornography is satanic discipleship. All of this should grieve us. It should absolutely break our hearts. Pornography is satanic discipleship. And it seems that Satan is winning. But as 1 John 4, 4 declares, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's the reality. And our passage today assures us that the blessed, those who, who love God, true believers, will not conform to the world. Uh, we will not be mastered by anyone but Jesus Christ. And this is not just positive thinking on, on our part or self-motivation. Uh, when I say that we will not conform, I'm stating an attribute of the blessed. I'm stating a fact. Those who love the king and his kingdom are those who are pure in heart. That is who they are. The Beatitudes are declarations. Uh, they've been given new hearts, ones that love God and his ways. And so they strive with the strength that God supplies not to conform to the world. Uh, they are in a life and death battle for purity. What is at stake is our very souls. In our text this morning, Matthew 5, 27 through 32, the king has arrived on the scene and he is reestablishing the baseline. Jesus is the new authority. He is the fulfillment or the destination of the entire Old Testament and the first thing on his agenda is to communicate the true heart of God in relation to the scriptures. Uh, the previous passages there uh, explain to us that he did not come to abolish the scriptures but to fulfill them. And so in the area of sexual immorality, we see that Jesus lays down the standard. Don't touch, don't even think it, and radically fight. And that will be a rough outline for us this morning. Don't touch, don't think it, and radically fight. So don't touch, verse 27. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. In Exodus 20:14, God spoke to Israel and, and told them, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is considered, considered to be sexual intercourse with someone other than one's spouse. And in Old Testament times, it was punishable by death. Now, we know that adultery is sin because of the command, and we could leave it there. God forbids it. But what is God's heart behind the command. What is the moral reason why? Why does he give this? We don't have fellowship with a, with a bunch of random abstract rules, but with a king and his kingdom. We are his followers, and we're following a person. And so in order to answer that question, we need to understand God's original purpose or design for marriage. So in Genesis 1.27, we learn how God made man and woman in his own image after his own likeness. Right? He made them both in his image. This brings enormous value to their relationship, image bearers relating to each other. And many see God's image reflected most prominently in the mandate given to the first couple to rule or manage the earth and those characteristics that are required to do that. In Genesis 1:28, we're told, And God blessed them, man and the woman, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
So they were blessed with this command to jointly rule together. They were to expand the temple garden and so fill the globe with worshipers of Yahweh. This, this joint venture was an, an essential aspect of their image bearing. They were created with a purpose, and that purpose was a joint venture. The two were to do this together. And then to further affirm this view, we see that the woman's primary role in the relationship was to be Adam's helper. Genesis 2.18 states, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. A woman is man's associate, helper, and companion. She is man's helpmate in fulfilling that mandate to manage and rule. She is his partner in this joint venture. But not only that, she's also man's companion. Adam delighted in Eve. And so Adam exclaimed in Genesis 2.23, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And then we see in the rest of the Old Testament, marriage is often described as a covenant and exemplifies God's covenant with his people. Now we have this Genesis 2, 24 and 25 text where the two become one flesh and leave their father and mother, hold fast to each other. It exemplifies a covenant, even though the word isn't used there, but it exemplifies a covenant between the man and the woman before God. And then in various other texts in the Old Testament, we see this explicitly stated. One example would be Malachi 2.14, where we read, But you say, why does he not? That is, why does the Lord not receive our offerings? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So here we see that the married couple are to be one another's companions, which is lovely, but also that the marriage union is a covenant before God. So companionship, but also covenant. Peter Gentry, Old Testament scholar, defines uh, this covenant this way. The marriage relationship is a loyalty agreement. Right? It's a loyalty agreement formally solemnized by a vow before God. And so if we see marriage as a companionship, and a covenant before God, then this alludes to the permanency and the intimacy of marriage. God is the official witnessing agent. He is the authoritative notary judge, so to speak, which is why Jesus says later in Matthew in 19.6, So they, the married couple, are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so the permanency of this relationship points to its intimacy. The two become one flesh, no longer two, but one. It is permanent, but also intimate. It is special, and everything about it is exclusive. Just as God's relationship with his chosen people is permanent and intimate, special, and exclusive, so also is this one flesh bond of the husband and wife, permanent, intimate, special, and exclusive. And so marriage is the most special and exclusive human relationship which marries, right, or bonds together one man and one woman for life. The two each from different families form this one unique and special family unit. The two become one flesh. Not three or four become one flesh, not a man and a man, a woman and a woman become one flesh, but one man, one woman for life. That is God's perfect plan, his perfect design. And so we have a picture of this joint venture, man delighting in woman, the two becoming one flesh, glued together physically and emotionally, 
destined to chart their own course together, co-partners in this grand mission to expand the temple garden apart from their parents, special and exclusive, and not ashamed. That was God's plan for marriage. Isn't it lovely? Isn't it absolutely beautiful? But the fall tarnished that union brought hardship to the relationship. In Genesis 3, 17, God told Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So because of sin, the woman would now desire the man's authority. The man in response would now be domineering over the woman. And so sin introduced enmity into this beautiful relationship. Yet, gloriously so, in the New Testament, through the redemption of Jesus Christ, God is wonderfully reestablishing or empowering the original design for this one flesh relationship. So everything that went sour in the fall as it pertains to this relationship is being restored and renewed and empowered in redemption. The man is called to love his wife and enabled to do so. The wife is called to submit to her husband and respect him and enabled to do so. The spirit in them enables them to do this. And then we see something quite amazing. We see that from its inception, the marriage union always intended to reflect Christ's relationship to the church. And this was God's original intent or or purpose for marriage. So Ephesians 5.22, again, Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So Christ didn't come along, look around him, and see all the great marriages, and then decide, you know what, I'm going to use marriage as a picture of my relationship with the church. Uh, No. From the beginning, marriage had as its hidden purpose uh, to reflect Christ's wonderful relationship with the church. This exclusive, intimate, permanent, special, joyful friendship. This covenantal relationship. And this mystery, uh, that is Christ and the church being one, is profound. Now, all of this has been said simply to explain why adultery is sinful. The world has so distorted God's plan for marriage and reduced it down to legalized sex or a union between whoever agrees to be involved or just done away with it as much as possible. It's hardly recognizable in our society, what we just went over. It's hardly recognizable. Adultery is is sinful because it breaks this solemn covenant between the husband and wife and most importantly, because it breaks this solemn covenant with God. It destroys the one flesh relationship and and so distorts the model that is to reflect Christ's relationship with the church. Or we could say the gospel picture itself. It does damage to this 
picture of Christ's love for the church. Adultery is wrong because it does violence to the gospel picture itself. And so after looking at God's plan for the union between a husband and a wife and, and seeing the utter glory and wisdom behind God's heart on the matter, it ought to really cause us to, to ponder why the church is in its current state of affairs. Kent Hughes wrote a book years ago called The Disciplines of a Godly Man, and he has a chapter on purity where he lists the following statistic. And this is an older copy. He says, Leadership Magazine commissioned a poll of 1,000 pastors. The pastors indicated that 12% of them had committed adultery while in the ministry. It's one out of eight pastors. And that's not the world, but the church. And not just the church, but the supposed leaders of the church. So what is, what's going on? Well, we, we could say that this is because we're inundated with sexual images and we're this sexually charged society, and that is all true, but that's not what our text says. That's not what Matthew 5, 1 through 12 teaches us. Our text says that the blessed uh, are pure in heart and will pursue righteousness. The text says no one will enter the kingdom of heaven unless their righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. That's what our text says. We might also say that many who are in our churches were saved later on in life. That might explain the, the current divorce rates, for example, in our churches. But I just read that 12% of pastors committed adultery while in the ministry. Not before they got saved, but while in the ministry. And so in light of, of this understanding that the blessed of the Beatitudes are those who truly love and long for the kingdom, right, true believers, I think that we must conclude that what has gone on in the church hasn't been Christian. And I think that what we are seeing is that in years past, there was this greater societal pressure on couples to remain together. I'm talking 50 years or more ago. And so there was this greater external conformity to the command, do not commit adultery. But now that pressure is gone. There's no social advantage uh, to, to keeping the charade uh, going on. And so we're seeing man's true desires surface. See, when Jesus repeated the command here, do not commit adultery, it's not intended to be a shocker. You know, he's actually getting to something else. It wasn't intended to be radical. The society of the first century affirmed the, uh, this command just as they affirmed the command not to murder. That's not the case in our day and age. Uh, we are a post-Judeo-Christian society. Adultery might still carry with it some kind of social stigma, but nothing like it used to. In some circles, it's even applauded. And so in our day, this command sounds radical. But if this is radical, then God's true heart regarding matters is absolutely insane because God's true heart is that, is that, that a man not even lust after a woman who is not his spouse. And so not only is it sin to touch, but it's also sin to even think it. So Jesus goes on, verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Webster's Collegiate Dictionary defines lust as to have an intense desire or need, crave, specifically to have a sexual urge. The Greek word used here means to have the affections directed towards something to lust, to desire, to long after. It's essentially a neutral word taking on positive or negative connotations depending on context uh, when it's used in the Greek. In 1 
Timothy 3, for example, the word is used to talk about a man's desire for the office of overseer, the office of pastor or elder. Uh, but here the connotation is clearly negative. Andreas Kirschenberger defines this lust, this particular lust, by saying it does not refer to a strong sexual desire a husband has for his wife and vice versa, which is God-given, but to an indiscriminate, unrestrained sexual desire for men or women, not one's marriage partner. This involves sensuality, gratifying one's senses in an intemperate manner. Of course, the use of any type of pornography by individuals, whether married or not, would be prohibited. So just as we learned several months ago that how murderous anger is the heart path to murder and so is sinful, so also is this lust the heart path to adultery and sinful. Right? It's, it's heart adultery. And so a person might externally obey the commandment and think that they're righteous before God, hadn't physically committed adultery, but Jesus is explaining that all along the command was pointing to the heart. So Jesus, with divine authority, makes it clear that the adulterer is not only one physically, but also one mentally, in his heart, that is, his biblical heart. And the Bible just attributes at least these functions to the biblical heart, our thought process, our thinking, and our desires. It's more than that, but the biblical heart is at least those two things. The heart that commits adultery is the same heart that lusts after someone, not their spouse. It's the same heart. And our, and our biblical heart is who we are at our core. So it's the same heart. The only difference is the result. One physically commits adultery. The other just wants to. The latter doesn't commit adultery because of certain reasons. Maybe they didn't have the opportunity. Maybe they couldn't find someone to commit adultery with. Uh, maybe it would cause too many social or financial problems. It might result in losing a job or some friends, whatever the case might be, but it wants to. The heart is the same in both. Here's the issue. Heart adultery is an attack on the primary purpose of marriage. It is a heart that does not value God's design for marriage. It is a heart that tears down or devalues the intimacy of the husband and wife union that points to the union of Christ and the church, the gospel. It does this mentally. It does this in their heart. It reveals a heart that hates the gospel. This lust is open rebellion against God's purposes for marriage, which is open rebellion against the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is, it is high treason, disloyalty to God, the one who made the heavens and the earth. It is an attempt or a desire to make marriage something less than intimate, something less than special or exclusive. So if the object of sinful lust is a married person, then this inordinate desire inserts another person into that exclusive and special bond of two people and so seeks to overthrow that bond, if only in one's mind, in one's heart. This is an offense against God's heart who sealed that exclusive and special bond, and it's an offense against the married couple. If the object of the sinful lust is an unmarried person, then this inordinate desire inserts a person into a relationship without making a commitment before God, without making a covenant, and without the consent of the other person. It does violence to the gospel picture. It does violence to God's main purpose for marriage. That is why 
this kind of lust is sinful. Heart adultery reveals a discontent, prideful heart, which when we understand that in light of God's sovereignty, it reveals a thankless heart. We're commanded, as we know in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstance, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So the person who looks at pornography or who looks at looks with sexual desire upon another human being who's not their spouse is essentially saying they are not thankful for how God has provided for them. They are discontent. They are thankless. They're not satisfied with the spouse God gave them or with their singleness. They are, they are prideful. They don't see their own faults. They believe they deserve better than what God has given them. They believe they are king. To lust after another person who's not your spouse is indicative of a lack of faith in God's goodness, in God's wisdom. This heart stance is one that believes that God does not know what is best for me and does not have my best interests in mind, which is rather blasphemous. It's a proud, critical heart. It attributes traits to God that are less than admirable. That's why it's blasphemy. It says with actions, God is not good. And ultimately, it is a struggle or a chafing against God's utter sovereignty. Because the reality is, is that he is king. His kingdom rules, not mine. And so my, my, my pleasure can never trump his glory. Whenever there is adultery, there is lust. And whenever there is lust, there's a lack of contentment and faith in God's goodness. And whenever there is lust, there is always a heart that says, my plan, not God's plan. Every time. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about heterosexual lust, homosexual lust. Behind it all is a heart that says, my plan, not God's plan. Visual arousal is intended for the marriage bed. Period. Visual arousal of any kind is intended for the marriage bed. And as Hebrews 13.4 explains, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Looking at pornography dishonors the marriage bed. Lusting after someone who is not your spouse dishonors marriage. This kind of lust is heart adultery. And so Jesus says that the adulterous heart, the heart full of unrighteous lust, is guilty before God, not just, not only just the one who physically commits adultery. And so Jesus reestablishes the heart of God. To even step on the heart path to adultery, to even desire this in your heart is sinful and is worthy of eternal torment. This is the standard. This is a real standard the king has spoken. It doesn't matter what stage of life you're in, single, Married or widowed, this is radical. This requires a fundamental change of the heart, and who can change the heart? God have mercy on us. And he does. It was God's plan all along to give his people new hearts. Uh, the Israelites, God's people, could not obey. They whored after other gods. Uh, they were not faithful to Yahweh. They could not be faithful to Yahweh. And so in the midst of destruction... In exile, God encouraged them with these words of Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will put my spirit within you 
and cause you to walk in my statutes. You see, the Beatitudes in, in chapter 5 of Matthew in verses 1 through 12, they are a description of these new people of God with new hearts and his spirit within them. It's fulfillment of that. This is who they are. God's people are not those who claim Abraham as father. They are those from every tribe, language, and nation that have been given the Lord's spirit and new hearts. And so because they've been given the Lord's spirit and new hearts, they thirst after righteousness. They have been caused to walk in his statutes, which results in radical obedience. This is a practical, real, radical righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. So Jesus commands in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Uh, your right eye is your best eye. It's your aiming eye. If your best eye causes you to sin, throw it away, tear it out, it's better to lose that eye than the... Th than that the rest of you, body and soul, experience eternal torment. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut that thing off, throw it in the trash. It's better to lose your best hand than to burn in the lake of fire. Uh, we can understand the imagery of the eye easy enough. We know the eye is the gateway to lust in many instances. Uh, but the right hand might be a little bit harder for us to connect the dots. Many in Jesus' day viewed adultery as theft. And a person was stealing another man's wife. And so maybe this is why the hand imagery is used here in many Middle Eastern countries. The right hand of a thief was uh, cut off to deter criminal behavior. And I think in some places that might still be in practice. So sort of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth type deal. But Jesus is simply making the point that the adulterous heart is a heart that does not love God. And so is a heart that is in dire straits. That's what he's getting at. Heart adultery, sinful lust, is evidence of unbelief. It's evidence of a heart that does not love what God loves or hate what God hates. It is proof that the heart does not value the exclusivity of marriage. It does not value the institution of marriage. It does not value Christ's love for the church. It does not value the gospel itself. <clears throat> the adulterous heart is the heart of an unbeliever. I believe this passage functions like the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. True believers are going to heed the warning and repent. They'll turn. They will turn. Here's how I see the passage working. Uh, the blessed, those who have already been defined in the Beatitudes, Matthew 1, uh, 5, 1 through 12, as true believers, they are, they are pure in heart. Uh, those folks here, they read this text and they think to themselves, for example, why am I looking at pornography? To look at pornography is to commit heart adultery. It declares that I love what God hates and hate what God loves. It means I hate the institution of marriage, which means I hate the gospel. It is indicative of a possible reality that I'm an unbeliever. It means I'm an unbeliever. It's evidence that I'm an unbeliever. This drastically messes with my relationship with Christ and robs me of true joy. I don't want that. I will not be duped. Satan is not my master. My master is Jesus Christ, the one who is the exact substance of God that we learned last week in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. 
the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's the one who is my master. Therefore, I will do whatever it takes to ensure this never happens again. I must. I will align my soul with things that please King Jesus. And so in the case of pornography, if the pornography came through the phone, the tablet, the TV, the computer, whatever, wherever, the blessed true believers will be willing to go to whatever lengths to ensure this never happens again. They will lock down the phone. They'll get rid of the TV. They'll take another route to work in order to avoid a racy billboard. They will suffer any inconvenience. They will. They must. This is not legalism. This is the fruit of a heart that loves and knows the king and his ways. This is the natural fruit of a heart that loves the institution of marriage because, it, because marriage pictures Christ's love for the church, the gospel. This is the natural fruit, then, of the redeemed heart. And if a person is unwilling to be radical here, this unwillingness, according to the text, means that they are an unbeliever. And I've seen this in the counseling room. People who refuse to be radical here walk away from the faith. And we know, as good Calvinists, that that means they were never in the faith. So the blessed, true believers, have this circular conversation within their own hearts when they commit heart adultery. If this is not a challenge for you this morning, the things that we're talking about, then apply it to any habitual sin. Any sin that has been stubborn in your life. But they say... Right? They have the circular conversation within their own, own soul. Why am I unwilling to get rid of my phone and be inconvenienced? Why am I unwilling to be radical? The text says the reason is because I'm an unbeliever. Right? I mean, verse 30b, look at that. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. If I am unwilling to lose one of my members, for example, be radical then my whole body will go into hell. And who goes to hell? Believers or unbelievers? Unbelievers. But I am a believer. I am the blessed. I do love marriage and what it pictures. I do love the gospel. I do love Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross on my behalf. I do love his substitutionary atonement. I do love what God loves and hate what God hates. I will not be discipled by Satan. Well then, self, get rid of the phone. You can survive without a smartphone. You can. Better to lose the phone than lose your very soul. And they will. They must. They will be radical. The blessed, the pure in heart, see the wonderful mystery of Christ's relationship with the church reflected in the marriage union and so glorify their Father in heaven. This is not self-righteousness. This is not asceticism. This is done out of love for God and the heart that sees his plan for marriage as beautiful and wonderful and trusts his plan for their life. It's a heart that loves the gospel. Purity is not the end. It's the means to an end, and the end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Being radical 
purity. Being radical is not the goal, it is the fruit. It's the result of something else. And that something else is a heart that loves what God loves and hates what God hates. It's a heart that has been redeemed. The blessed love the ways of the kingdom. They love the institution of marriage. They love what it pictures. It is who they are. And so they will naturally loathe and declare war on anything that would attempt to lure their heart away from their king and his perfect design and from this glorious picture of Christ's love for the church. So it's really no surprise then that Jesus goes on to say, and it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. These two paragraphs are joined by a connecting word in the Greek text that's left out of the English Standard Version, which I've been preaching from. Because of that connecting word, I believe they're a unit and need treated as such. Obviously, I don't have time to go over uh, these verses in detail this morning, but I think it's helpful just to make a few comments here in light of our discussion. You see, the natural application of, of, of God's glorious purpose for marriage is that divorce is forbidden. And heart adultery is still in, in view, I believe. The Jews of Jesus' day referred to Moses' teaching in Deuteronomy 24, 1 and following, which regulated cases where men uh, divorced their wives when they found some indecency in them. And so many rabbis of the day taught that a man could divorce his wife if he found any sort of displeasure with her. Pretty much a no-fault divorce policy. Other rabbis were, were a little stricter than this, but in general, divorce was readily available so long as the woman was given a divorce certificate. But in light of our discussion this morning, we can understand all this really grossly misses the point. Uh, the heart that commits adultery is the same heart that looks at porn and is the same heart that divorces his wife for any reason. But those who belong to the kingdom have been given new hearts. They are pure in heart. They love what God loves and they hate what God hates. Perseverance in marriage is the natural fruit of new hearts. It's the overflow of new hearts, of redeemed hearts. It's the natural fruit of those who love the institution of marriage. And Christ's love for the church isn't boring. It's not a drag. It's, something, it's not something to just endure and put up with. It is joyful. Right? It's a joyful perseverance. Till death do you part is not the goal. It should be stricken from the marriage vows. Till death do you part with joy is the goal. The heart that loves God's ways will work at marriage. It'll sweat so that it portrays an accurate picture of Christ's love for the church. And this is for every believer. This is every believer's mission, single, married, or widowed. If you are the Lord's and you love the institution of marriage and you love what it pictures, if you are the blessed then you are one who radically battles for purity, your own purity, but also the purity of your brothers and sisters around you. You battle for the sanctity of marriage in your church, single, married, or widowed. It is who you are. It is what you do. You can do no other. So brothers and sisters, encourage each other in this battle. Persevere. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You will be victorious. You must. It is part of your identity in, in Jesus Christ. You were not saved to look at pornography. Christ didn't hang on the cross and suffer that convenience so that you could look at pornography. 
You will not be discipled by Satan. It's not going to happen. Remember whose you are. Remember what is at stake, your very soul. So if you're here this morning and you're struggling with pornography, fight, battle, claw, scrape, endure. Declare your loyalties. Like David at the end of Psalm 139, verse 21. You know, the Psalm 139, that beautiful text. Oh Lord, you've searched me, know me. You know, when I sit down, when I rise up, you know, my thoughts from afar. That beautiful text that describes the omniscience of, of God. You, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Just this beautiful text. David goes on for like 20 verses or so, and he's so full of love for God that he, he, it just moves him. He's got to do something. And it moves him to declare his loyalties. So in verse 21, he says this, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. See, his, his love for the Lord moved him to declare his loyalties, to throw down. So declare your loyalties. And then get some help. Live in the light. This sin, this particular sin, thrives in darkness. So find a brother and sister. Live in the light. You're going to find help here at Kenwood. You're going to find people who help you. Uh, We were not designed to fight alone. The Christian life is a we thing. So we are not a perfect congregation. Far from it. But we are a battle-seasoned congregation. Uh, We are a group of scarred-up, maimed, one-eyed, left-handed warriors. That's what we are. And though it may not be pretty, uh, we're not going to lose this fight. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And your righteousness will exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. So be who you are. Don't touch Don't fake it and fight radically. Persevere. Excel still more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for giving us new hearts. Thank you for putting your spirit within us and causing us to walk in your ways. We are so thankful it's not our performance that saves us, but Christ, who walked in your ways perfectly. One day we will be perfect when we see Christ face to face. In the meantime, Lord, strengthen us for the battle. Help us to link arms, to encourage each other. Grow us in our love for Jesus Christ. Help us not to be content. Help us not to downplay and coddle the sin in our hearts. Strengthen us to fight radically. That's where our joy is. Help us not to allow anything to get in between us and our treasure. Help us not to be duped by misplaced joy, not even for a second. And so we ask this, truly for our joy and your glory. Amen.